Section 57 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 7 A Chamber for the Traveler. Half an hour later, Gilead, having returned to the wreck, was mounting and descending from the deck to the lower deck and from the lower deck to the hold, completing the summary examination of his first visit. With the assistance of the capstan, he had hoisted upon the deck of the Durand the bale which he had made of the cargo of the boat. The capstan worked well. Bars were not lacking to turn it. Gilead had but to make his choice amid that mass of fragments. Among the refuse he found a cold chisel, which had fallen, no doubt, from the carpenter's box, and which he added to his little stock of tools. Besides this, for in destitution everything counts, he had his knife in his pocket. Gilead worked all day at the wreck, clearing way, consolidating, simplifying. When evening came, he recognized this fact. The whole wreck was quivering in the wind. This carcass trembled at every step which Gilead took. There was nothing firm and stable but that portion of the hull containing the engine, and which was embedded between the rocks. There the timbers were powerfully buttressed by the granite walls. It was imprudent to locate himself on the Durand. It was an extra load, and instead of adding weight to the vessel, the important point was to lighten it. To remain upon the wreck was exactly the contrary of what it was necessary to do. This ruin required the most careful treatment. It was like a sick man at the point of dissolution. There would be wind enough to work injury to it. It was even distressing to be obliged to work upon it. The amount of work which the wreck would be obliged to bear would certainly fatigue it and perhaps beyond its strength. Moreover, if any accident were to supervene during the night while Gilead was asleep, to be in the wreck was to perish with it. No aid was possible. All was lost. In order to rescue the wreck, he must remain outside of it. To be outside of it, yet near it, that was the problem. The difficulty was becoming complicated. Where was he to find a shelter under such conditions? Gilliatt reflected. Only the two Dupres remained. They seemed hardly habitable. A sort of excrescence on the upper plateau of the great Douvre could be distinguished from below. Upright rocks, with flat summits, like the great Douvre and the man, are decapitated peaks. They abound in the mountains and in the ocean. Certain rocks, above all those which one meets with in the open sea, have notches like trees which have been hacked. They have the appearance of having received a blow from an axe. They are, in fact, subjected to the vast movements to and fro of the hurricane, that woodchopper of the sea. There exist other causes for cataclysm, but still more profound. Hence so many wounds on all ancient granite. Some of these giants have had their heads cut off. Sometimes, from some unknown cause, these heads do not fall, but remain mutilated on the truncated summit. This peculiarity is not uncommon. The Roc au Diable, Devil's Rock, at Guernsey, and the table in the valley of Anweiler present this singular geological enigma 
under the most surprising conditions. Something similar had probably happened to the great Douvres. If the swelling which one perceived on the plateau was not a natural irregularity of the stone, it was necessarily some fragment remaining from the ruined summit. Perhaps there was a hollow in this rock, a hollow in which to hide oneself. Gilead asked no more. But how was he to reach the plateau? How was he to ascend that vertical wall as dense and polished as a pebble, half covered with a sheet of viscous hairweed, and having the slippery aspect of a surface that has been soaked? It was at least thirty feet from the deck of the Durand to the ridge of the plateau. Gilead drew from his box of tools the knotted rope, hitched it to his belt by the grappling hook, and began to climb the little Douvre. The higher he mounted, the rougher became the ascent. He had neglected to take off his shoes, which increased the difficulty of ascent. It was not without exertion that he reached the summit. On arriving at that point he stood erect. There was only room for his two feet. It would be hard to make it his lodging place. A stylite would have been contented with it. Gilliat, who was more exacting, wanted something better. The little Douvre curved toward the great one, which made it appear, when seen from a distance, to be saluting it, and the two Douvres, which below were twenty feet apart, were only eight or ten feet apart at the top. From the point which he had attained, Gilead had a more distinct view of the rocky swelling which partly covered the platform of the Grand Douvre. This platform rose at least three fathoms above his head. A precipice separated him from it. The cliff of the little Douvre, as it leaned forward, sloped away beneath him. Gilliatt detached the knotted rope from his belt, rapidly took in the distances at a glance, and hurled the grapnel upon the platform. The grapnel scratched the rock, then slipped off. The knotted cord with the grapnel at its extremity fell back beneath Gilliatt's feet along the little Douvre. Gilliatt tried again, throwing the rope farther forward and taking aim at the granite protuberance, where he perceived crevices and scratches. The cast was so adroit and so neat that the hooks held fast. Gilliatt drew upon it. The rock broke, and the knotted cord returned to strike against the cliff beneath Gilliatt. Gilliatt cast the grapnel a third time. The grapnel did not fall. Gilliatt made a trial of the rope. It resisted. The grapnel was anchored. It had caught in some crevice of the plateau which Gilliatt could not see. The question now was as to the trusting his life to this unknown support. Gilliatt did not hesitate. There was the greatest haste. He must take the shortest way. Moreover, it was almost impossible to descend upon the deck of the Durand for the purpose of devising some other measure. A slip was probable, and a fall was almost certain. One may climb easier than one can descend. Gilliatt's movements were precisely like those of all good sailors. He never wasted strength. He only made efforts proportionate to their object. Hence the prodigies of rigor which he executed with ordinary muscles. His biceps were no stronger than those of other men, but he had a bolder heart he added to strength, which is physical, energy, which is moral force. The thing to be accomplished was formidable. 
to cross the interval between the two Douvres suspended from that thread. Such was the problem. One often encounters in deeds of devotion or duty interrogation points which seem placed there by death. Wilt thou do this? says the shadow. Gilead gave another pull to test the hook. The hook held good. Gilead wrapped his left hand in his handkerchief, clutched the knotted rope with his right hand, and protected it with his left hand, then, holding one foot in advance and giving a vigorous thrust from the rock with the other, in order that the impetus might prevent his rope from twisting, he precipitated himself from the summit of the little Douvre upon the cliff of the great Douvre. It was a hard shock. In spite of the precaution taken by Gilliatt, the rope twisted and his shoulder struck the rock. There was a rebound. His knuckles struck the rock in their turn. The handkerchief was disarranged. They were scratched, barely escaped being broken. Gilliatt remained hanging for a moment dizzy. He was sufficiently master of himself not to let go of the rope. A few moments passed in jerks and oscillations before he was able to grasp the rope with his feet, but he finally succeeded. On recovering himself, he glanced below, clinging to the rope with his feet as well as his hands. He was not disturbed about the length of his rope, which had more than once served him for still greater heights. The rope, in fact, trailed on the deck of the Durande. Gilliatt, sure of being able to descend again, began to climb. In a few minutes he had reached the platform. Nothing but what had wings had ever before set foot there. This plateau was covered with guano. Its form was that of an irregular trapezium, a fracture of that colossal granite prism called the Great Douvre. This trapezium was hollow in the center, like a basin, the work of the rain. Gilead's conjecture had, moreover, been correct. At the southern angle of the trapezium a mass of superimposed rocks was visible, the probable fragments of the crumbling summit. These rocks, a sort of heaps of gigantic paving-stones, left room for any wild beast which might have strayed upon that crest to slip between them. They supported each other confusedly, leaving interstices like a heap of ruins. There existed there neither grotto nor cave, but holes, as in a sponge. One of these holes might admit Gilliatt. This den had a floor of grass and moss. Gilliatt would be as though in a sheath there. The alcove was two feet high at the entrance. It grew smaller as it approached the extremity. There are stone coffins which have this form. The pile of rocks being backed up to the southwest, the lair was assured against the waves, but was open to the north wind. Gilead thought this a good place. The two problems were solved. The boat had a harbor, and he had a habitation. The excellence of this habitation consisted in its being within reach of the wreck. The grapnel attached to the knotted rope, having fallen between two masses of rock, was solidly fastened there. Gilead rendered it immovable by placing a large stone upon it. Then he immediately entered into free communication with the Durande. Henceforth he was at home. The great Douvre was his house, the Durande was his shipyard. 
Nothing was more simple than to ascend and descend, to go and come. He slid rapidly down the knotted rope to the deck. The day was favorable. He had made a good beginning. He was content. He perceived that he was hungry. He untied his basket of provisions, opened his knife, cut a slice of smoked beef, bit into his loaf of brown bread, drank a draught from his can of fresh water, and made an admirable supper. Working well and eating well are two joys. A full stomach resembles a satisfied conscience. After his supper was finished, a little daylight still remained. He profited by it to begin the lightening of the wreck, which was very urgent. He had passed a part of the day in sorting the fragments. He laid aside in the solid compartment where the machine was all that could be of service, wood, iron, cordage, canvas. He flung what was useless into the sea. The cargo of the paunch, hoisted upon the deck by the capstan, was an encumbrance, scanty as it was. Gilead perceived a sort of a niche, hollowed out at a height which he could reach with his hand in the wall of the little Douvre. These natural cupboards, not closed in, it is true, are frequently to be seen in rocks. He thought that it would be possible to entrust his stores to this niche. At the bottom he would put his two cases, that containing his tools and that containing his clothes, his two sacks of rye and biscuits, and on the front, a little too near the edge perhaps, but he had no other place, his basket of provisions. He took care to withdraw from the box containing his clothes, his sheepskin, his hooded tarpaulin, and his tarred leggings. In order to remove the knotted rope from the power of the wind, he made fast its lower extremity to a rider of the Durand. As the Durand sank in a good deal, the rider was considerably curved, and held the end of the rope as well as a closed hand would have done. The top of the rope remained. To fasten the base was very well, but at the summit of the cliff, as the knotted rope encountered the edge of the platform, it was to be feared that it would be gradually sawed through by the sharp angle of the rock. Gilead rummaged among his stock of reserved fragments and drew out several strips of canvas, and from a bit of old cable several long pieces of twine, which he stuffed into his pockets. A mariner would have divined that he was about to pad the section of the knotted rope in contact with the rock with these bits of canvas and these ends of thread so as to preserve it from all injury, an operation which is called serving. Having supplied himself with rags, he put on his leggings, drew on the tarpaulin over his pea-jacket, pulled the hood over his red cap, knotted the sheepskin about his neck by its two legs, and thus clothed in this complete panoply, he grasped the rope, henceforth firmly fixed in the flank of the great Douvre, and mounted to the assault of that gloomy tower of the sea. In spite of his scratched hands, Gilead quickly reached the plateau. The last pale gleams of the setting sun were fading away. It was night on the sea. The summit of the Douvre retained a little light. Gilead took advantage of this remnant of day to serve the rope. He applied to it, at the elbow which it made over the rock, a bandage consisting of many thicknesses of canvas strongly bound at each layer. 
This was something like the padding which actresses put on their knees for the agonies and supplications of the fifth act. The serving of the rope finished, Gilead, who had been crouching down, straightened himself up. For the last few moments, while adjusting the strips upon the knotted rope, he had had a confused perception of a singular quivering in the air. In the evening silence it resembled the silence which the wavings of the wings of an immense bat would produce. Gilead raised his eyes. A great black circle was wheeling above his head in the deep white sky of twilight. In old pictures these circles can be seen on the heads of saints, only they are of gold and a dark background. This was dark on a light background. Nothing could be stranger. One would have pronounced it to be the aureole of night on the great Douvre. This circle approached Gilead and then retreated, contracting, then widening again. It consisted of mews, gulls, frigate-birds, cormorants, sea-mews, a cloud of astonished sea-birds. It was probable that the great Douvre was their home, and that they were come to sleep. Gilead had taken a chamber there. This unexpected lodger disturbed them. A man was something that they had never seen there. This frightened flight lasted for some time. They seemed to be waiting for Gilead to go away. Gilead, vaguely thoughtful, followed them with his glance. This winged whirlwind finally took its departure. The circle suddenly resolved itself into a spiral, and this cloud of cormorants alighted upon the man at the other end of the reef. There they appeared to be consulting and deliberating. Gilead, as he betook himself to his granite sheath, and placed a stone under his cheek for a pillow, heard the birds talking for a long time, one after the other, or croaking, each in his turn. Then they became silent, and all went to sleep, the birds on their rock, Gilead on his. End of chapter 7 A Chamber for the Traveler